when it comes to the unknown world this high risk world of predicting the future nobody knows neither you nor your venture capitalist nor your employee nobody knows because if people knew about the future they will be billionaire they will not hanging out with you mm-hmm. <laughs> since nobody knows the future your own intuition is as good as anybody else's intuition hi i'm jubin operating partner at kleiner perkins and i'm excited that you're tuning into grit The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. I was listening to a couple of your other podcasts and I was very impressed with how you did with Ali. Oh, Godse. What a Ali. Yeah. Godse, what a great story. unbelievable right unbelievable like bombs falling Isn't running out crazy? of the house is crazy so i heard a lot about ali leading up to that i've met him once or twice but he has a reputation for like pretty serious dude like he's very <laughs> serious and intense and the reflection i had walking out was he was really vulnerable and honest and just open yeah he talked about his kids uh, totally. cancer issues and how that made him more humble and empathetic and yeah all of that it was awesome thank you the thing that struck me people was uh you know when he was talking about his son and he basically said look i have exhausted every option available to me and then the cards are going to just fall as they may like he was so pragmatic about something so emotional and that really stuck with me it is not easy to be talking about your kids specifically when the kid has an issue that you have no control over yeah. i mean it's kind of like you're helpless yeah and to be able to express that cogently was was pretty amazing i mean you did a great job of Thank getting you. that out of him because it's not easy see a lot of these things about podcast and conversation is about comfort and creating the safe space yeah. you did a great great job i watched a few i listened to few other of your podcast i was like really curious and bill mcdermott i know a little bit so yeah. i wanted to hear his yeah. podcast it was very impressive yeah thanks man i completely agree that it's about comfort because it's like acting in a sense a good actor is as much themselves in the character as possible they can't get on stage and just think like they're acting does yeah, that make sense and exactly. a lot of the time people do podcasts like this and they try and be someone else. You know, sometimes I listen to some of my favorite podcasts and I think about what would I say? And you start to almost be a caricature of yourself. In fact, I would argue not only is that on the podcast, that's like generally in leadership. I have seen so many founders and CEOs try and play the part of the founder and CEO. And eventually that kind of gets you in trouble because it's hard to make that last. Don't you think? authenticity actually is so critical particularly in today's environment because expertise mm. doesn't matter because with the knowledge economy that we live in and with chat gpt collapsing the knowledge gap all it matters is authenticity because everybody has exactly the same information yeah. and everybody is at the edge of innovation and the intuition about the future everybody is the same yeah so how do you trust someone the trust is not based on knowledge trust is based on authenticity and it is not just in business it's in politics it's everywhere the reason 
Trump won was not just that Trump had the right message. He was authentic. There was no filter of handlers yeah. or pre-tested messaging yeah. that he went through. So yeah. he could connect with the audience yeah. in a way that he was fearless. Yeah. And everybody else had to figure out what keywords to use and what yeah. to say and what not to say. Yeah. So in this age of overload of information, yeah. authenticity re- reigns supreme. Yeah. You know, I'll give you even a step further, which is I think there is something around him just going on to CNN and just being there and just being in the lion's den in that respect. I don't know. I just find like when you are willing to be yourself in every corner of the house, it's easier. Life becomes easier that way. People can at least depend on you to be one way. Now, whether or not they agree, if that's the way that you are or not, like whether they don't have to identify with you, but at least they can count on you to be that person. And then taking that like maybe one final step further, they can self-select whether or not they want to follow you, whether that's a president, whether that's a political candidate, whether that's a CEO. It is true everywhere. I mean, I have this fundamental belief that you need to have the ability of the extreme voices to be able to express themselves because that gives the permission to the fat middle, the middle of the road folks to be able to express. And when you have the middle of the road express, you make for a stronger democracy, you make for a stronger team, you make for stronger companies because people have to have that permission. Mm. And when they say that, if people can say such extreme things, mm. then I should be able to say, middle of the road things and that's where the strength or the anti-fragility of the system emerges so i'm a huge huge and uh, supporter is that how of the, the company extreme. runs today yeah we how inc- big is rubric rubric is close to three thousand people three thousand people and so is the point that you're making like hey i actually like the extreme voices because it gives permission to the moderate voices to speak up absolutely because if moderate voices see that people can ask extreme difficult questions, whether the question is about why food in the cafeteria repeating or something else, or my my salary is not higher or my bonus is not bigger, then the fat middle and fat, I'm not saying in a bad sense of that yeah. word, but the central majority, they are able to express things that they feel could make the company better because a lot of time people have this social approval anxiety because of which they don't express. But when they see that extreme voices are expressing, that gives them implicit permission. Mm. Do you get worried about the distraction, though, that comes with the extremes? Look, at the end of the day, you have to make a determination whether you want to have all the brains in the game or you want to have a singular voice in the game. Yeah. If you want all the brains in the game, then you need to tolerate certain inefficiency in the model. Yeah. Just like democracy, you could have a democratic system where you have lots of discussion, lots of debate, but it ultimately creates a longer term, better outcome as opposed to a single person rule that can be very efficient in the beginning, but you may not have the buy-in from everyone else. Yeah. I actually like that. So you would disagree with the Brian Armstrong stance, like what they did at Coinbase, which was work is a place of work. And that's the only thing that we talk about. See, that there is a difference between the political speech mm. and non-political speech. Mm. Business is not a place for political speech. Business is a place for business speech. So you want all the voices to contribute to the business, to move the business forward. If the political voices are not making the business forward, 
So I would not encourage political voices at work. Right. So your tolerance is around the extremes, anything business related. To anything, your point, pay, etc. Anything business related and anything that has the intention of moving the business positively forward. Mm. And then can I revisit the Ali thing for a second? Sure. I'm Persian. My parents immigrated here from Iran. Ali is a first generation immigrant, as he said in his story. Going back to your point on authenticity, I wasn't, nor was he raised to share a very personal version of you in settings like work. I wonder, you were raised in India, right? Yes. Is that how you were raised too? Did it come natural to you to be yourself at work as a leader? Not at all. So similar situation, in some ways, the Indian culture and Persian cultures are similar. People don't like to talk about themselves and there is a more of pluralistic thinking mm. as opposed to singular thinking. But when you are in a company situation or leadership situation, folks are looking at you to kind of get some form of comfort saying that if this person is vulnerable and this person is expressing something about their life, which means that they are not alone if they are feeling, have similar feeling. So in some ways, the job of a leader is to externalize the whole organization's thinking. And when they are vulnerable and they are externalizing their own thoughts, in some ways it's giving permission to everyone to, it's okay to feel that way. Yeah. I think it's really easy to say, how long did it take you to be able to figure out that it's actually good business for you to do that? Was it at the beginning of Rubric? Did it take years into that journey? Was it before then? I'm just curious, like how long did it take you to gain the confidence? Because it's very uncomfortable. Like it's uncomfortable for me to, I know it's the right thing to do. I know it is. I know being vulnerable with my team, being vulnerable with my partners is absolutely going to move our agenda positively forward. It's still awkward. It's, I still have a hard time doing it. I don't think about vulnerability just to move the agenda of the company forward. Mm. If you express the vulnerability or the leadership or your personal thoughts, just keeping company in mind, then you're not authentic. Then mm. people will see through it. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be authentic or the authenticity sake. Mm. Otherwise, it's all about are people believing what you're saying? And if you have thinking about the company or the business or moving something forward, they will see through it. Mm. So authenticity is important and authenticity cannot be related to business. Mm. What you are expressing is your own inner thoughts, is your own vulnerability so that everybody is able to be vulnerable. It's like when a CEO takes a vacation, then it gives permission to for everybody else, implicit permission, that it's okay to take vacation. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But you cannot associate everything with the business outcome. And revisiting your commentary around the fat middle of voices in the company, why is that important to you to enable those voices? I have a strong belief that biggest risk in any business is the blind spot of the decision maker. And when you have many people in the discussion, when you have many people free to express their opinion about a situation, then you reduce the blind spot. You have more angles, more risk factors identified early on so that you can figure out the mitigating things. For me, the most important thing is that you, and you have all the brains in the game in the sense that everybody is expressing. Then the chances of 
having a large blind spot is low mm. as a result your business will be better can you get in trouble where someone might have so much conviction on something that in an environment like that you conflate the conviction for accuracy does that make sense does the question make sense absolutely makes sense yeah. and that's where the leadership comes in mm. the leadership cannot make a decision for the psychological safety of the leader the leadership has to make decision to live in the conflict and not optimize for if somebody is so convincing and that gives you psychological safety to make that decision that's a wrong decision so ultimately the leader has to listen to all the voices and make a decision not optimizing for psychological safety in talking to several people that have worked for you for a very long time one thing that is very obvious to me now is that i think your team would tell you if you sucked at something i think they would tell you if you had a blind spot would you agree with that that is by design yeah. because that's the one thing that i have been from the beginning of the company i've been trying to solve for is there a time where someone's given you feedback that you were like well it's always painful at first first thing you do is it hurts and then it turns into gratitude do you can you remember a time where that has happened it happens all the time i mean it has happened to an extent that when new executive team member joins the company yeah. the other people will tell them that hey vipul changes his mind all the time so express your opinion yeah because the whole design of a company you want to be a living system you want to be a system where debate and discussion is encouraged otherwise if i have a blind spot and if i'm making the decision without hearing other people's opinion around me the chances of me making a wrong decision is high particularly if you are a fast growing company where you are making lots of decisions and speed of decision making is the central advantage of a startup or a fast growing company the blind spots can be hugely amplified if you're not actually careful what do you mean the speed is a advantage is the advantage or an advantage is the advantage for any business so if you think about the difference between a startup and incumbent the only advantage that a startup has is the speed of decision making is the speed of all the activities in the business because large companies because of their incumbency and revenue stream and structure bureaucracy they can't make decisions fast startups has nothing else mm. just the speed mm. when you were growing up did you have siblings yes how many siblings just one mom and dad were together in india yes i have a belief which is why i ask every guest on the show that a lot of the way that people are in their adulthood is actually curated at the dinner table growing up so i wonder for you what was conversation like at the dinner table for me it was very achievement oriented my parents talked about work together amongst themselves they both worked at the same company they were scientists and so the conversation at the dinner table for me was about work it's no surprise that now i'm quite fixated on achieving and and work i wonder for you what was it we didn't have like this dinner table kind of a situation or configuration where we would dinner with my parents or dad or mom because of the way we were and the places we live in but there was a lot of call it like learning came through osmosis just the proximity and just hearing my parents speak to each other my dad is speaking to his business colleagues he was a pharma entrepreneur in 60s in india and it didn't work out for him but what he did he started two companies both failed 
but to start the company and he motivated himself in a situation where financially it was just too crazy to even think about starting a company he wrote in on the wall that hard labor long foresight and strong determination are the keys to success he had that written on the wall mm. to motivate himself so it was lot of osmosis that a lot of my kind of business understanding mm. or situational understanding comes from the dinner table comment what do you mean there was no dinner table i grew up uh, very poor i mean we had food security issues we didn't have a proper place to to live all sorts of things so there was no like family getting together for dinner situation that didn't happen yeah it was more just like where's dinner coming from or even if the dinner was there people eat at different times dad like traveling or not traveling but for out for work comes mm-hmm. late and all, all sorts of situation watching your dad try and fail do you remember like as a kid how did you think about the endeavor of doing something and coming short not once but twice do you remember like how you felt about that as a child i was too young to kind of have actual feeling yeah. I mean, his second company failed when i was probably 12 13 years old so i was not in the kind of mode to completely understand the psychological upheaval that happens or the i was only feeling the financial or economic side of it yeah. but not the psychological or the trying effort but looking back now lot of things that my dad told me about life and ambition and focus and execution was like things that got into me without like explicit understanding of the business situation sure. how did he relay that process to you as a kid meaning how was he telling you what was happening in his world at the time do you remember does that question make sense yep totally we knew that it was not going well things are going south we have all sorts of problems and we had problems even before he started his second company so we were seeing it so there was no discussion about like what is explicitly happening with the company but there was like discussion around he would tell me that bipol you can become anything you imagine to be we are only limited to by our own imagination or he would talk about how this world is a manifestation of our own thinking and what your true desires are if you are able to express that and channel it you can create a new world for yourself mm. so it he had all this kind of profound thinking and very ambitious person but there was no sit down and i'll tell you this it yeah. was like in everyday conversation in situations he would say these things and in many things that i didn't realize back then when i was a kid growing up when i started rubric i thought of like asking my dad that okay how when you started the business how did you think about the yeah. business and i had this profound realization that even when he started the company 40 years ago in india 45 years ago in india a lot of is thinking about the truth of the businesses in the market and spend time with your customers and careful about, about the product yeah. quality a lot of things were so true and timeless that really blew my mind so i spent a lot more time asking him like how do you think about this or that yeah. parts of the business is he still with us no he I'm is sorry. he is no more what surprises me the paradox that i'm trying to poke at is even though he was taking these huge swings and missing he still encouraged you to take those swings 
something really powerful about that. That's pretty amazing. Looking back, the things that he taught me and also he encouraged me to take kinds of rest. Even after high school, he asked me to not take admission into a small college dropout and prepare for the IIT entrance examination. I don't know whether I will have that much belief in my kid's ability in the circumstances we were in to take that much of a risk because the risk was really either I go to a top school in India or sell tobacco on the street corner. I mean, there was no middle he ground. He told you, hey, don't even bother with the no-name schools in India yeah. because it's IIT or bust to get out of India. That's it. Get out of the poverty. There was no question of out of India. Yeah. It was a question of we always used to live in a basement and we had no bathroom or running water because we didn't have rent to pay. And he said, you don't have uh, high school, middle school, elementary school education. You don't have good grades. You can't get into a respectable school. IITs are the place to go because they don't look at your past uh, score. It's, it's, it's a test. It's a 12-hour test that you give. You pass the test. They don't look at any other grades. Wow. As long as you pass the basic exams. And basically what he was saying is there is no pedigree. Let's just go on your raw intellect to That's see it. if we can do it. That's it. And the thought at that point was never, I go to IIT, I get to go to America. No. It was just, I go to IIT, I get out of this basement. That's it. And then you took the test and you got in? No. Nope. I failed first time. I sat at home for one full year. I failed to get into you IIT. You sat in the basement. Yes. You f Studying for a year. Yes. And in the back of your head, you're like, this is my only way out. That's it. And you failed. Yes, that's it. You tried and failed. I tried and failed. And what happened was I gave the state and college exam just to also have like a back end for me. Yeah. And I failed that too. The like no name schools or whatever. Or the middle, yeah, middle okay, school. Yeah. I remember distinctly that when I failed the state college exam as well, he brought sweets and he said, I'm so happy that you didn't get into a state school because if you gotten into a state school, you'll never go to IIT. And my whole family, like my cousins and uncles and aunts, they all thought that this father-son duo has gone crazy. <laughs> this kid has no educational background. He has never shown any sign of any kind of achievement. The acceptance rate at IIT is 1%. So it is kind of an impossible dream. But he had the courage to dream. He had the courage to imagine a future that he could see. And this is what kind of really became the mantra of my life that we are all prisoners of our own imagination. Mm. We can become anything that we can imagine to be. This might sound naive, but why didn't you go to school? Like, why didn't you do any primary schooling? Because the place where I grew up, there was no good schools. It was all Hindi medium and government schools where there's no teachers, nobody will come to school. So you go to a school, your name is there in class one, class two, class three. But you don't go to a school because there's no infrastructure in a school. I remember class 6th or 7th, used to sit on the ground just to kind of write an, a small exam to go to the next grade. Yeah. So your parents were just like, what's the point? Because we didn't have resources to go to better schools. And we were in a very, very small town. The government schools had no facilities or infrastructure. And even thinking about your dad, like there's no notion of incrementalism. There was no idea that he could have gotten a government job or something that paid the equivalent of the state school, something moderate, a moderate job. He wanted to go for it. And that came at the expense of like, 
you know, you're still living in the basement. He was so ambitious and he had a vision about himself so large that he didn't want to compromise. And after many setbacks, our relatives convinced him to take a small job. And he took a small job in like late 80s. He did that for a couple of years and that job also didn't work out. So in many ways, after the, his initial set of setbacks, he took a job that didn't work out. So he made me his whole project. Mm-hmm. He later told me that he thought in his mind that his life is done. And if I can have this kid a chance to a brighter future, and this kid is my my project. So in some ways, yeah. I'm sitting here and expressing myself. I'm a spokesperson for my dad and his ideas are expressing through me. How often do you ever go back to that kid in the basement? How often does that feeling come back to you? Does it still exist somewhere? Or have you figured out a way to positively channel that? Like I'll give you a very personal example. Growing up, my dad would run out of gas on the side of the freeway. And there is a feeling that I remember because you know, I didn't have money and we're going to school. And I just sat there feeling very helpless. You know, he'd smoke a cigarette. We'd figure out like the closest exit to go get gas and fill up the car. And that Jubin, like the helpless Jubin, sometimes I feel like I can really channel it effectively. And it's all of the drive that I'll ever need. But sometimes I feel like when things go sideways, the monster comes out of insecurity. Like I'm running from that person still. I wondered, how do you relate to young Bipol in India? Does the question make sense? Absolutely. So I do not have any like negative feeling about it or any kind of demon that is lingering around from that time. The gift that that experience has given me, because when four of you stay in a small room for 10 years, thatched roof, it gives you a very different kind of discipline because you don't think about setback as a setback. You think about setback as you try to forget it as fast as possible and reorient yourself towards the next thing that you're running towards. So this whole experience has really given me this amazing situation where I do not think about failure as a failure. I just think about failure as a passing thing. Because I know that if I apply myself and if I can imagine to be where I want to be, I will get there. And that some in the back of my mind, there's some confidence, call it God's grace or call it your parents' grace. Something that is there in the back of your mind that it'll all be all right. When was the first time that the idea that you could actually leave India came to pass for you? When I graduated out of college, my top of mind thinking was that how do I take my parents out of that poverty? I figured that if I work in India and get salary in India, even private sector or government, I'll not be able to make enough money in short period of time to be able to take my parents out. And they're getting older. And they're getting older. And my brother was uh, about to go to college and I had to support him and all, all the rest of it. So I decided that America, because of the 40 rupees per dollar, is like 40x multiple. The America was the fastest way for me to bring my family out of poverty. So I came to America solely as an economic migrant. But something happened when I landed in America. Since I didn't live in India in a regular middle class socioeconomic situation, I didn't have a feel for India. You see what I'm saying? Mm. Because you are so downtrodden 
and then you go to college and four year after college your yeah. whole world view is that poverty is that poverty and the situation you are in so when you come to america and i felt like america is a magical place that allows you to reinvent yourself transform yourself nobody cares about where you come from nobody cares about whether you speak good english or bad english nobody cares about who what your dad did what people care about is that are you creating value in the ecosystem and that kind of socio economic structure really appealed to me i felt like this is my place yeah and i never thought about doing anything else but staying in america building life here and it took me long time to remove the fear of slipping back into the poverty where i came from yeah, almost still see little bipple in the basement yeah because i always felt like any job i have because my mom always told me that hey do not start any company or start any business because, because she saw she, what you saw your dad she saw my dad and she saw how hard the her struggle, life was the struggle all her so life she was saying don't do that don't do that so first 10 years or 8 years in america i just did my job earned salary and worked as a software engineer became a manager director but it was all about going through this phase it was in some ways transformational for me because when i started working uh, came to america i started working as a software engineer and then became manager director at oracle at oracle yeah. i used to think that oracle is so good to me and i'm so lucky to be here because you know you don't have a full appreciation of your self worth because i didn't have the regular experience of your teachers telling you that hey you're so good in maths or so good in writing nobody gave me any feedback mm. first time i sat in a proper classroom was at iit so the four years of iit was still the beginning of my journey so it took me like 7 8 years at oracle to really fully fathom who i am mid 2000s i had this feeling distinct feeling that i don't exist because of the world the world exists because of me mm. and that thinking transformation really made me more risk posture i removed the risk averseness and since then i went to part time business school then switched into venture capital then i, I didn't never thought about risk as something to be scared of part time business school like warden business school yeah yeah how old were you when you left oracle do you remember yes i was probably 31 32 years old and that's when you felt like you started to get your sea legs underneath you in terms of that confidence interval that time to think that i'm not because of the world the world is because of me that distinctly happened around 31 30 31 years old and then what did you do once you felt that way once you realized that once the shackles were off what did you do that really changed the way i thought about life things like what i always thought about like i need to express myself i need to really express what my true thinking is true thinking about business about situation so what i did was back then i thought i'm doing engineering but i want to do something else so i went and I spoke with different teams at oracle to get a job in marketing which is completely different mm-hmm. from engineering or to mna and i got this feedback that hey everybody looked at me as an engineer and they said that hey you have no business background you have never been to any formal business school so we want you to have a street experience as in like get some business experience mm. and i thought that if my engineering background and degree is my liability how do i turn into an asset so if i add a formal business school education to it i can really then express myself so i did joint part time program at wharton 
and then in parallel it started to kind of network to look for jobs completely outside of engineering that's when i landed in venture capital and you did 2 years at bloomberg i joined bloomberg in the middle of the business school program okay and worked there for 2 years let me tell you a little bit about the bloomberg story yeah please so i was a director of engineering at oracle and they had an opening and uh, i said i want to talk to you guys so they called me i had multiple rounds of interview and this was like 2008 and then the whole world had crashed the finance world had crashed mm-hmm. and everybody who was a banker or related to finance were all looking for a job so you can imagine a venture fund hiring at that time like everybody wanted that job they looked at my resume they met with me but they had this nagging feeling that hey this guy is a engineering director he has never done any deal or never done biz, actual business or biz dev or anything like how will he do as a venture capitalist and so they thought that probably i can't even imagine what the job is so i kept at them saying give me a chance and i distinctly remember they said hey come back after a month and let me let us meet other other folks so they kept meeting other folks after a month i one evening i gave a call to david blumberg who was the owner of blumberg capital or the principal of blumberg capital and i said look david i know you're looking for uh, people with banking background and other background i can confidently tell you that i have zero years of banking experience <laughs> or 3 months of internship that i did but i can do what 10 years of bankers can do give me a chance he thought for a second he said come to my office tomorrow morning so i went to his office next day morning and he said i thought a lot about it i still can't give you a full time job but if you are ready to accept a consultant job to join my firm as a consultant and i will evaluate you for 3 4 months and then i'll decide whether to give you an offer or not and if you are ready to do that come and do that and i had a banking offer from bank of america back then so i decided to let go the banking offer i took this uh, wow. consulting not consulting the, as a consultant sure job and at uh, blumber capital basically an intern basically an intern slash head i'll give you a try to their credit i mean i joined on monday they put me in front of some of their people to look at the deals and had a lot of deal discussion by friday they gave me a full time offer no kidding yep how motivated were you at that point to make that thing work that was the second like most important realization i had the week i joined blumberg the second realization i had was i said that hey i took almost 70% pay cut to take this venture job mm-hmm. coming from director at oracle to like brand new guy at a venture fund so i'm not going to do anything to make anybody else happy i will only do things to make myself happy by that i meant do not express yourself thinking about others do not make decision thinking about others only make decision that you truly believe is the right thing to do and that was the realization because i i told myself that i have taken this very important step in my life and this is the moment of truth either yeah. you are on this side or that side if you are here at the moment of truth you want to succeed or lose based on your own terms not what others feel and had you gotten your family out of india yet at this point my family was still in india but i bought them flat and okay I, okay I you got them out of the out of the place that they were living yeah. in to a bigger city got them a flat i had my brother 
go to college and then he got married and so the family was settled by then dude what was that feeling like getting them out of there i never go back to think about that thing because again i'm not living in the past i'm only living chasing this magical fantastical future that i can't define yeah and where did you land when you came to america in atlanta in atlanta and that was the revelatory city that you the job uh, like <laughs> blind wants two eyes right <laughs> so i got a job in atlanta in america and honestly back then i didn't even have a sense of how much was the salary so they asked me like how much is your salary i quoted like uh, $40000 would suffice and that is a tiny amount so they thought that this guy is totally out of clue they gave me a higher salary <laughs> no way <laughs> yeah because i they thought that this guy has no idea because in my mind i was thinking that once i land in america i will figure this out but i need a landing space i need the 40x multiple to support the family so i was in a not in a mind frame of thinking about optimizing maximizing and three four opportunity i didn't have that situation as i said blind wants two eyes right that's the one shot one angle land mm-hmm. how did the light speed opportunity come up so at blumberg i started as a vice president and then they promoted me to be a principal in the second year mm-hmm. light speed had heard my name because i had done a few deals that folks paid attention to and light speed cold called me actually wow and did you start as a partner there so i started as a principal Okay. Very soon, I became a partner in in few months. And you spent four years there. Yes. Right? Is that yep. right? Yep. And you were doing pretty well, weren't you? Yeah, I had uh, a good fortune of running into some situations early on that became right. An adventure that's large. very important. Yep. Early success is very important. In so venture. I had uh, early success and somewhat of a clear signal that I knew how to pick the companies and what companies to pick. so that signal was there but in my mind i thought that where i come from this is all impossible situation and i'm playing with houses money so to say i was not supposed to be here and then i was thinking that what is my this magical fantastical future that i'm running for and another th- other thought was everybody knows microsoft founders nobody knows microsoft investors So even if I'm first investor, even if I'm a board member, I will not be able to create an enduring institution that I will call something that I built. And that was the thought process of yeah, leaving venture the, capital. Yeah, but it's a 40x job. You can get your family out to the States if you want it. You know, your life is really good. Like it's a cushy job. Were people at the time telling you, Dude, this is your career. Like you could really have a career in this. Similar to did people tell you that when you were a software engineer at Oracle and then a manager? Did people tell you, "Boy, you're really good at this?" And I'm curious if they did, how did you relate to that comment? The thing that I am I'm running for as I said, I don't look at where I'm standing today because I'm not living in today. I'm living in for this magical fantastical future that I can't even define. i'm trying to find my own potential so i'm never happy where i am and that detachment of where you stand and you're not happy with it that's the drive for the next and next and next and since i'm gunning for this unlimited magical fantastical 
maximalist thinking it never keeps you happy or never keeps you satisfied so to say so you're always like thinking about next mm. and for me coming into venture capital was that hey i don't know about this but i want to be the best at it and once i started doing it i told myself that i know i can be good at this or i have some early signal where i can see that i have a path here in fact when i left venture capital a lot of folks told me that bipul you are going into a salt mine because no vc goes in to start a company from scratch they mm. typically see a company going and jump into the middle of it but you are going to come out and call first engineer and second engineer to start the company from scratch but for me i thought like what do i have to lose one thing that i struggle with that honestly it took me until kp to come to a realization is i always thought that i wanted to be a founder and what i have clearly realized is that the greatest founders that i've ever seen have this feeling of dissatisfaction it's this antsiness and this urgency to pull the future forward and bend their current state towards that future and there's something very magical and exciting about that however there is also this to your point dissatisfaction this lack of presence where nothing is good enough i guess the realization i had is i feel like you need that in order to achieve in the ways that you have and will continue to achieve which is the same thing that i see with a bunch of other great founders however that's kind of a scary reality because when do you get to just appreciate and enjoy the moments the things that are happening as opposed to living in that future i don't have a question as much as an observation my take on this situation is that it's a in some ways a very transcendental experience because when you are detached from your own current situation you actually tell yourself that i'm not the body i'm in or i'm not the mind that is thinking because if you think about those two things it's easy to become happy so you transcend that and think that hey is this the end of me and when you transcend that then you are not looking at the local maxima that you have achieved then you are thinking about the arc and you don't know where the arc will lead to but there is a again at potential outcome that you are gunning for that you can't define so you are not limited to a benchmark that you have set for yourself because there is no benchmark i didn't know before 6 months before starting rubik that i wanted to become a founder i had no idea 6 months before becoming venture capitalist i didn't know i wanted to become venture capitalist so i don't know what the future keeps or how the future will unfold but i'm looking for this maximalist outcome this fantastical outcome that i can't even define because careers and lives are unlimited but i'm maximizing right now yeah all the opportunities in front of me to unfold that future did the lack of clarity into what the next steps are ever frustrate you did it ever annoy you that you were halfway through light speed and you didn't know what the next thing was i don't think about uh, next thing i only think about something big that i can't define so there is no limit and i'm maximizing right now so whatever i do today 
I look at maximizing right now, and then I don't worry about the future because if you can maximize now, the now will become the future. And world is a full of accidents. It's very hard to predict in an uncertain world a certain path. Mm. So the best way in my mind is to navigate life and career is to maximize the current opportunities and leave the future to itself. And while maximizing the current right now, the current set of opportunities. You will find angles to the future. Yeah, Nikesh from Palo Alto Networks had a very similar reflection, but doesn't that kind of go against conventional wisdom, which is you know write down your goal, write down your ten-year plan, do everything you can to work towards it, will it into existence? At the end of the day, conventional wisdom leads to conventional outcome. And what are you gunning for? Conventional, unconventional. unconventional has no definition there is no calculation there is no calculated risk there is no future planning conventional unconventional has to be unconventional hmm because if you can predict the future then the future doesn't exist today rubric is valued at over 3 billion dollars and has raised money from lightspeed and everybody else 500 plus million dollars of funding raised There's now articles that are getting released about, you know, there's plans to go public. It, that's been like years in the making, I think. So like now, okay, like business is very interesting. When you left Lightspeed, did other people see what you saw and come chasing after you to go start this thing with you? Obviously, three of my co-founders yeah. came onto this journey. Four yeah. of us started this company together. Arvin Two Arvinds and yeah, Soham, yeah. and one Arvind is <laughs> with Kleiner yeah. at Glean. Yeah. See, the thing is that we were very clear day one that we want to create an enduring institution, an institution that will last longer than our professional career, mm. and that we were very clear about what the path would be. We had no idea. Mm -hmm. So, in some ways, too much planning and too much forward projecting actually is limitation. because if you are always try to become something in in new, near future then you're not maximizing the opportunities that is in front of you because you're not accepting the reality of today hmm. so we always took the approach that we are going to execute the max out of today and navigate as things come along you guys kind of came out of the gate swinging didn't you meaning the business didn't take that long to start working would you agree with that yep Can you give the 30 seconds like what does rubric do? We are a data security company. We help businesses and governments around the world recover from uh, cyber attacks such as ransomware. You raised your series A in March of 2015 and then your series B by May of 2015, right? We have been like raising rounds in a quick and, succession. And let's just assume, not that this has been the reality over the last few years, but let's just assume that those fundraising moments correspond to progress in the company. One of the weird thoughts that I had was, it's very rare for companies to come out of the gate swinging in the way that you did and have this meteoric rise straight from the get go. Usually, it happens a few years in, and then it compounds on top of that. and nobody knows about the first few years. Did you ever worry about not having the organizational resilience from the get-go because when startups have hardship, 
early, which almost all of them do. They almost all come to near-death experiences. They build the coat of armor that they can then use later on when things inevitably get tough. It's in their DNA. I don't know. Did you ever think about that? Actually, it's a very insightful question. And I hundred, I'm 100% with you that you have to pay tuition at some point in the journey. Either you pay tuition in the beginning or pay tuition in the middle. Every company has to pay the tuition, so to say. We had our own struggle internally. Everything looks clean and simple from outside. But to grow the way we grew and the organizational change and re-engineering of the operating infrastructure that we had to do along the way, it was not insignificant. And it led to a lot of work and a lot of success and failures along the way. But one thing that we were very clear about, we were very clear about building a business that is market relevant. And if you are in a large market, like $20, $25 billion market, if you are doing a $100 million or $50 million, you are not relevant. So for you to get relevant, you have to make hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. So we were very clear about that. How do we get market relevancy fast? And we designed the business in terms of how we allocated risk capital, how we hired sales team, how we did our marketing, how we did the whole orchestrated the go-to-market strategy. It was all about get big fast. And one mantra that we had was, again, who says that what is the speed limit of a growth of a company? If nobody knows the speed limit, why not go for the maximal outcome? And we did. You've never been a founder before. And I had this impression when I joined Kleiner Perkins that founders, you just think that they all know what they're doing, <laughs> you know? And I think the not so secret truth is nobody really has any idea what they're doing. And by the way, that includes second and third time founders because every business is so different. Was there a nice perspective that gave you confidence, at least coming from Lightspeed, having spent four years there seeing so many businesses being built, knowing deep down that, you know, I've never done this before, but a lot of successful companies kind of had no idea what they were doing most steps of the way. This is actually absolutely right. Even in venture capital, I always thought that there are two worlds that we have the known world and the unknown world. So going to office in your car in the morning is a known world. There's very little risk. But starting a restaurant in San Francisco is a high-risk business. Nobody knows why and how it will work. So if you think about starting a new company is kind of standing in the middle of the unknown world and then pulling the edge of the known world to you so that now the, you make the new thing a reality. When it comes to the unknown world, this high-risk world, the predicting the future, nobody knows. Neither you, nor your venture capitalist, nor your employee. Nobody knows because if people knew about the future, they will be a billionaire. They will not hang out with you. Mm -hmm. Since nobody knows the future, your own intuition is as good as anybody else's intuition. Yeah. And then you have to apply the framework that I thought about. I was saying the second most important realization I had. I thought that I'll make all the decisions to make myself happy. As in like, I'm not making a decision just because my VC says so, just because my co-founder says so, that's because my employee says so. I'm not going to make a decision that for psychological safety, I'm going to make the decision to make sure that I'm clear 
that it moves the agenda of this company. Yeah, going back to our conversation about the opinions of the fat middle, I actually think that's why it matters because in order to make the right decisions for the business, you need context. The context matters. And the people that have the most context are the ones that are in the trenches solving the problems. Exactly. Generally, it's not your VCs, right? Generally, it's not the people on the outside world that are opining on the way that your business should run. In fact, even in the fat middle, there's a very, very slim margin of people that are doing the work. You need to make sure those people get you the context that can voice their opinion in order for you to make the most informed decision. Maybe it's right or wrong, but it's the most informed. And then I think that's how you gain speed in startups is just having a lot of context from the organization all the time so that you build a 60% confidence interval to keep pushing forward. Do you agree with that? 100%. So two things that are very, very important in a startup is speed, at least from my experience. One is the clarity and transparency of why we are doing what we are doing. Super clear. Remove this mystery of founders and they have a special knowledge. Remove that mystery and make sure that everybody understands why we are doing what we are doing. Very clear. And then second thing is really get, hear everybody out, but make a clear decision. A clear decision with no confusion and don't take too long to make that decision. Hear everybody out, like make sure that fat middle's voice is heard. VC's voice is heard, every voice is heard, depending upon the problem that you're solving. But make a decision and make a very clear decision. So as long as you have clarity of purpose and fast decision making, you will move fast. To your first point about sharing information broadly, how long did you invite everyone to your board meeting at the company? For seven years. Seven years. You must have over a thousand employees. Yes. And how did that go? How did that work? It worked wonderful. People could dial in. People could zoom in. People could come to the room. People could sit in the office and zoom in <laughs> within the office. All sorts of For things. the entire board meeting. For the entire board meeting. Everything. Everything. Burn, financials. The only thing that we didn't discuss was the equity or compensation piece. We discussed everything out in the open. And what did the investors think of that? For new board members, it used to take like a couple of board meetings to kind of get used to it because everything that they're expressing, everybody hears it. I distinctly remember, so there was an engineering leader who presented some topic. And after the presentation, one of the board members asked, saying that, how experienced is this person? And will this person be able to take us to the next level? It was something to do with a product or quality, something. And that person was on the call because it's an open board meeting. And I said, I don't know. We'll see how he does it. But so far, he's doing a good job. And after the board meeting, this person called me and he said, Vipul, thank you for your honesty. Because I know I can do it, but you don't know I can do it. So I thank you for your honesty. Wow. Did you feel like board members then resisted what they really wanted to say? No, they said what they wanted to say. And we used to have quite tasty board meetings. And why did you stop? I'm curious. Do you regret stopping? As we are growing and all the events yeah. that we are preparing for, you don't want to have situations where something things get leaked. Something will go to jail. Yeah, or things that they don't fully understand. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you talk about your framework on hiring and firing? 
for me the framework on hiring is make sure that the person that you are hiring whatever experience they have they have to have this attitude towards learning your own your business the new business because a lot of people come with this kind of i have a playbook and i can apply the playbook playbook does not work in a high growth or a startup situation because if playbook worked then everything is known then there is no uncertainty there is uncertainty because there is no playbook per se so always look for people who are have the relevant experience but more importantly are very curious about learning this business and then applying mm. some of their knowledge and modulating it for this business so that's kind of hiring framework firing framework for me is the most important job of a leader is to not only hire people but more importantly make sure that the right people are on the seat the issue is you get psychological safety when somebody is on the seat even if that person is not the right person and you are doing injustice not only to that person but to the entire company because the company is suffering because of your inability to make decision about that person and it is an injustice to that person as well because they will thrive in other places they are not thriving here mm-hmm. so you have to really control your psychological safety what do you mean by psychological safety because people feel good that i have somebody on the seat mm. if you take the person There's out of the seat there's a void there someone's not doing that job you're exactly. saying exactly so that gives you this upheaval this cognitive dissonance especially with leaders exactly so the most important thing in business at least in my mind is to control for psychological safety learn to accept conflict that you will have two different feeling at the same time but don't resolve that feeling because if somebody is the seat is empty on one hand you will think that hey i'll find the right person on the other hand you will have this worry that hey this job is not getting done so you have two opposing forces how to accept that opposing forces and still be able to operate what do you think's the a piece of startup advice that you actually think that's well worn and true And what do you think is one of the worst pieces of advice that people give in startup land? I ask you specifically because of all the perspectives that you now have. See the biggest piece of advice for me is to the founders saying nobody knows anything. So if nobody knows anything your own intuition is as great as everybody else's feedback and suggestion. So follow your own feeling. think about it this way you are driving a motorcycle at 100 miles an hour in complete darkness no advice can go going to help you your own intuition and what you see in front of you and inch by inch you are driving that's the only answer so you have to really follow your own thinking and intuition so that's like a uh, thing to do thing to not do is the following if you are raising venture capital So the venture capital is given to you which is the most risky asset class is to create growth and take risk so if you are raising venture capital you have to think about disruptive growth and you have to create disruptive growth otherwise it doesn't make any sense to do so a lot of time what happens is people raise capital and become conservative think that i have this capital let me kind of <laughs> make sure that i take conservative path that's never a good good answer you have to figure out how to create fast growth disruptive growth with the capital that you have i was with 
Ariel last night, the Navon founder, he was saying how they've done some very interesting big bets things recently. Big business to do some big bets. And one week a year, he was showing me pictures of he was in uh, Mexico scuba diving. Wow. And he's like, that's where most of my idea, he does an annual trip by himself scuba diving. And I'm telling the story because that's where his big bets come from. That's where he starts to think about the 10x ideas that the company needs to implement. Do you, where do you find space to have these thoughts? Especially because the hard thing is, as the company grows bigger, you become a prisoner of your own calendar. How do you think about it? For me, the time on the calendar is not the determinant of whether I get ideas or not. Typically, I get good ideas when I'm talking to somebody and they are telling me the situational issues or what they are seeing in the marketplace or what is happening in the marketplace or how particular technology is evolving. As you're developing context. By listening to these conversations, by listening to the feedback, by listening to the customer, then I start to connect the dots that okay, here are the things that we could connect. I almost never on my own sitting by myself come up with some big ideas. That doesn't happen to me. It always happens in a, in a group context. Do you think you're going to work forever? I mean, uh, I don't... Do you want to work forever? Why not? I ask just because... Because I have no finish line. That's what I mean. Obviously, this is a personal question, but like, what does your wife think about that? <laughs> you know, like, like, how does that go? I met my wife in college. Yeah. In some ways, uh, I'm here because of her relentless support and almost blind faith also in my ability to do different things. And she has taken a lot of negative aspects that comes out of like a starting company, changing career, all of that. We are married for 25 years. Wow. She's my best friend. She's my partner. She knows me. So in some ways, I'm able to do this because of her. Otherwise, this will not be possible. So she knows that I have this relentlessness in me. And in some ways, she finds it funny, but <laughs> she understands that I'm serious about this. Yeah. I don't know where this story would end. But since I don't know where this story would end, I'm pushing it. Yeah. How often are you thinking about work? All the time. All the time, right? All the time. Nonstop. Nonstop. And you love it. I've overused this example on the show recently because I love it so much, but Parker and the Rippling team talk about how doing this work is like playing their favorite sport. It's just like you want to do it all the time. And then when you're not doing it, you're thinking about like how to do that move, how to do that fadeaway, where you could shoot that three-pointer, how you could bend your knees a little bit more. And you love it. And when you're playing it, you're like in the ultimate flow state. Do you feel that way? I don't know whether I get that like um, spiritual flow state huh. thinking about this. But one thing that happens is the amount of thinking that you do for the business, it becomes uh, in some ways your nature. Since this thing lingers in your head, you keep getting ideas, you keep rejecting ideas, you keep thinking about what's going on and what's the next move or this move. But there's no flow state per se. And it creates this permanent state of dissatisfaction because wherever you are, you always think that you're failing. So in some ways, 
accepting the dissatisfaction and conflict and failing feeling as the reality and then maximizing that moment to create a better future in some ways is an opportunity view of the moment where you are thinking that what i could be doing now for better tomorrow mm. and you are constantly on that chain do you ever feel like you need to get space from those thoughts i don't think so never never like you love like you like having the thoughts all the time i don't even think whether i like it or not but that's my nature yeah i'm just fascinated by this i absolutely loved doing this i just can't wait to see what you guys do are the public talks like is that a secret now what's the deal with that i can't talk about it but look we want to build an enduring institution yeah and who knows how big rubric can be yeah and we are on this journey to express ourselves to figure out how big how large how fantastically massive this institution can become yeah. we don't think about how big and what happens along the way we are on this journey to create a maximalistic future let's imagine you do go public and you're on the stock exchange do you think you're going to be thinking about like we got to get back to work 100% because again i'm not living for in the moment as i said this is a transcendental feeling i'm in the situation but i'm not off the situation yeah i'm transcendental from the situation i'm only thinking that how large and how big and how massive it can become yeah. so so what has happened is already taken into account yeah it's gone yeah ali godzi talks about how he's very intentional about putting deposits into the organization because inevitably he's going to take a lot of withdrawals out do you have to be intentional because when you're always thinking about what's next sometimes it's hard to acknowledge someone for doing a good job or whatever do you think about that at all of making sure that people feel acknowledged so don't you cuz don't you think it could be a downside to the way that your your mind works 100% so first several years I never used to give positive feedbacks to folks ever ever and the so early team in rubric they understood that but once we grew to a certain size I have to teach myself to acknowledge and it's not my nature my nature is not acknowledging because I'm not like I'm transcendental in the moment yeah so I'm only thinking about the next and next and next so I have to really teach myself and stop myself to acknowledge and it was very very important and that was a learning moment for me that as a leader you can be relentless but you can't expect everybody else to have same psychic energy so you have to meet people where they are and you have to bring the whole tribe together so to say in the early days you knew that all of your employees were missionaries it's like crazy to join a series a seed even series b stage startup there's so much risk going back to your point of expecting the greatness in yourself of others expecting that other people give a shit like you do when you're a 3000 person company that's not the way it works anymore it can't be does that ever as a competitor as someone who's so dead set on building this institution feel like you can really sometimes lack empathy for those that don't have that same drive to build the same magnitude of importance in this company that you do so the thing is that this is where you have to kind of train yourself to be empathetic to acknowledge to smell the roses yeah. to ask people to smell the roses because again 
the thing is that what makes you successful in the first four or five years of your company being a total disruptor is exactly the opposite of what you need to be after four or five years of the business. So think about it this way. You have to be at your disruptive max to create something out of nothing. So zero to one. But once you have 100, 200 million dollar in revenues, then you have an asset. And then so many people's life's dream, kids' college, livelihood depends upon this asset. You have to convert yourself from a pure disruptor into a manager of the asset. So you have to take different risk. You don't stop taking risk, but you have to take different risk where you are expanding the asset value as opposed to being so disruptive that you can kill the asset. And that's why where the behavior change, acknowledgement, bringing the team together, making sure that you are creating an executive team, the company is not like one person centric, you have like a strong management team. Those things are equally important. So that's what I was saying that as a founder, you have to transform yourself from pure disruptor to a manager of the asset. Mm. And that is, again, a different skill because you have to build processes and systems so that you are not jumping to put out the fire every time it happens. Mm. Is Rubrik hiring? Are there any key roles? If so, we are hiring everywhere from engineering to sales and marketing and products everywhere. Go to the website. Check yes. out, see what you got. 100%. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? Who do you think of? What comes to mind? Relentless. Pitbull, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.